Well, this morning we continue in 1 Corinthians. We'll get into 2 Corinthians next week for those of you reading along with us in our New Testament reading. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. And if you needed a, a title of 1 Corinthians 15, it would simply be, it's all about the resurrection. That's the foundation of our faith as believers. Someone has said Christianity is a religion of the resurrection. And that's true. The resurrection is our hope. It's what uh, we, we hope on and, and, and hold on to when we consider our future. Without the resurrection, uh, we're lost. Well, if you ever encountered a true skeptic, uh, a skeptic might agree that Jesus was a real person. A skeptic might even give you the fact that the crucifixion uh, actually happened, that it was a historical event. But a skeptic is going to attack and, and going to deny and going to ridicule the resurrection. Why is that? Because the re resurrection was the point of utter defeat for our enemy. It is a pivotal point in our salvation. And what Satan does is he continually uses the wisdom of this world or use people in this world who, from a worldly standard, appear to be wise to explain away the resurrection and to explain away this vital point in our faith. Why does the enemy do that? Simply because the resurrection holds up everything that we believe in our faith. It's the only uh, hope that humanity has. Well, if the Christian faith is going to be destroyed, it's going to be destroyed at the point of the resurrection. And you know, denials of the resurrection have occurred throughout history, even in the church, even among people who, who claim to have faith. Here in 1 Corinthians, we have the, uh, the Corinthian church. Um, you remember um, that they were young and immature church. They're receiving this letter from Paul, and it's just 21 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and yet even in the church, here in the Corinthian church, there are some in the church who doubt the validity of the resurrection. And what, what is happening in the Corinthian church is a great warning to us today. They were young church, they were, they were immature believers. They've just come from a pagan culture. They've come out of a pagan culture, a pagan society that is filled with human philosophies that are against the word of God. And because that's the background they've come out of, their thinking has been conditioned by their culture. We have to be very careful that our thinking is not conditioned by culture. We have to know the truth. And then we have to take every belief and every philosophy and every opinion and hold it up to the truth. Here's the problem in the Corinthian church. The Greek culture taught that the spirit was good and the flesh was evil. And because they saw the flesh as evil, they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection because they wanted to escape the body. They wanted to escape the evil flesh. The problem was, if you deny a bodily resurrection, then you deny the resurrection of Christ. And that false teaching had, had crept into the church. So Paul spends 58 verses here in this letter defending and explaining the importance of the resurrection. Now, you may, as a believer, say, well, yes, yes, I know the resurrection is important. I, I believe the resurrection. But do you really understand its importance and how vital it is to the faith? Beyond that, can you defend the resurrection? Can you speak to its importance? You know, there are professing Christians today who deny or at the very least are skeptical about the resurrection. And you understand that not everyone who is a professing Christian is actually a true follower of Christ. But there are people who claim to know God, but they deny his power. They, they want God when they need something. 
They, they want a God who is loving and gracious. They want a God who can provide and, and, and protect. They want a God who does for them, a God who is made in their image and does what they want them to do. They want a God who has power as long as that power is available for their use, to use as they see fit or, or to their benefit. They don't want a God who has power over them. They don't want a God who's a sovereign Lord. So they deny the resurrection. Why? Because the resurrection is the full demonstration of God's power. Uh, the resurrection is consummate power in that it demonstrates the power over the ultimate enemy, which is death. If you acknowledge the resurrection, then you have to acknowledge that God is sovereign and has power even over you. And there are not many today that want to acknowledge that and give God complete control of their lives. Well, let's look in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to dive in about verse 12 and read verses 12 through 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, why does, he, he says if you deny a bodily resurrection, you deny the resurrection of Christ. Why is that? Well, the Bible makes clear that God is, or that Christ was a man. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. You see his humanness demonstrated all through the Gospels. His humanness is, is evident after the resurrection. He appeared to all those that he appeared to, over 500, he appeared in bodily form. His wounds were evident. They were able to see his wounds. On more than one occasion, he, he ate with them in a post-resurrection appearance. He was clearly human. So Paul's point to the Corinthians is, if men don't rise, Christ didn't rise. And that would be devastating to all of those then and now who place their faith in him. What Paul says in these verses we've just read is, he, he mentions five things that would be true if Christ was not raised. Let's look at those five things. The first thing in verse 14, he says, look, you can quit wasting your time listening to gospel preaching because it's empty. There's nothing to gospel preaching if Christ wasn't raised. The true gospel always points to the resurrection. Without the resurrection, all we have is a dead teacher. Christ was a good teacher, but he's dead if he wasn't resurrected. There is no good news if the one that we count on for victory is nothing but a, a, a bag or a box of bones in a tomb somewhere in Palestine. There's no good news for us if that's the case. Paul goes on to say in verse 14, he says, by the way, speaking of dead, your faith is dead too. What does he say? It's, it's vain. It's empty. It's, it's worthless. Why? Because the object of your faith is Christ. And Christ said he would rise again. If he didn't do that, then he's not who he claimed to be. And so your faith is dead. What does the Bible say? The Bible says there is salvation in no other. There is no other name given among men under heaven 
whereby we must be saved. If Christ did not pull it off, then it's over. Look at the second thing Paul says in verse 15. He says, not only is your faith in vain, not only is our preaching in vain, verse 15, he says, the apostles are liars because they testified to a resurrection that did not occur. Listen, if the apostles are liars, don't believe anything they've said. Don't believe this book that God used them to write because they lied about the resurrection. Now, consider the fact that the apostles suffered incredible persecution and all but one of them were even martyred. They were killed for their faith because they refused to deny the resurrection. From a human standpoint, they had nothing to gain from the resurrection of Christ. When they saw the risen Christ and they began to spread the gospel message, they didn't live glamorous lives. They didn't live with great material wealth. They went through a lot of suffering, a lot of persecution, and were martyred for their faith. Why would the apostles tell such a bold lie for that human response? And even beyond the apostles, Let's consider other early believers. In Hebrews 11, you see the the hall of faith where Paul lists some by name and some not by name. Paul lists all of these people who had faith that Christ was resurrected. And he talks about all that they went through because of their faith. He says they were tortured, they were mocked, they were scourged, they were in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were slain with the sword, they were destitute, they were afflicted, they were tormented. Like the apostles, they had incredible faith that literally allowed them to put their head on the block and have their head severed from their body, and they didn't worry about their human life. Why? Because their faith was based on the resurrection of Christ. They were were absolute fools if there was no resurrection, and yet so many of them were willing to lay down their lives on a foundation of faith that was based on the resurrection. The third thing that Paul mentions, if the resurrection didn't occur, look in verse 17, this is very critical. If the resurrection didn't occur, there's no forgiveness of sin. You say, well, well, I thought our sin was forgiven on the cross. I thought the shedding of blood covered our sin. That's true, but the demonstration or the proof that Christ has power over sin and that Christ has the power to forgive sin, the proof of that is that when our sin was placed on him, sin did not defeat him. Christ died on the cross for our sin, but he rose again. The resurrection proved that Jesus was able to overcome and defeat sin and death. The fourth thing that Paul mentions, the fourth result of the resurrection not being true, is in verse 18, he says very simply this, since there was no forgiveness of sin in verse 17, verse 18, those who have fallen asleep, Paul didn't like to say died, because when you're in Christ, you're just translated to eternal life. Those who have fallen asleep, those who have already died, who had trusted Christ and trusted his power over salvation, trusted his resurrection, what does he say? They've perished. What does that mean? It means they've been destroyed. Maybe you've never given thought to that, but but think about this. If Christ was not resurrected, then no one will be. If Christ was not resurrected, then all those who die perish without hope. Think about all the great saints, Peter and and Paul and James and and people like uh, D.L. Moody and people like Charles Spurgeon and, and people like Billy Graham. If Christ was not resurrected, those people all now find out their faith was a great hoax, and and they find themselves in hell. Why? Because their sin was not forgiven. 
and they have no hope. The fifth thing that Paul mentions here that is true if the resurrection was not real, verse 19, he says that we who have hope, those of us who have trusted Christ and placed our faith in him and his redemptive work, we who have hope are of all people most to be pitied. Why? We've been deceived. We're, We're living a foolish lie. Now, Paul started this section, chapter 15, Paul started by reminding them of what the gospel message was, the message he received and the message he passed on to them. Do you see it in verses 3 and 4? Here's the gospel message, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day, according to the scriptures. So how do we shore up, understanding how vital the resurrection is to our faith, how do we shore up our faith in the resurrection, and how can we speak? How can we give an appropriate defense to those who doubt and to those who are skeptic? I'm going to cover a few things very quickly in defense of the resurrection this morning, and I've covered a few of these things before, and I hope as you hear them you're reminded because I want to cover them as often as necessary until they're ingrained in your heart and in your mind and in your spirit so that you can give a defense for your faith and specifically for the resurrection. Let's talk about what a skeptic would say about the resurrection. If you want to talk about a general statement, a a skeptic would say, you know, it's very improbable that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you look at it from, from our logic and our human experiences, we would have to agree with that. We would have to say from our own human experience and our own logic, probability works against Jesus being raised from the dead. Just think about our own experience. How many people do you know that have come back from the dead, been raised from the dead? How many times have you heard on the news a story about someone who was raised from the dead? Someone rising from the dead would certainly be noteworthy, and we would hear about it, and we haven't. A resurrection doesn't fit our logical human experience. But when we talk about our logical human experiences, we're eliminating the fact that there is a God in the universe And we're looking simply to the natural law as we know it, forgetting that God is the author of natural law. He put natural law in place. If God controls the natural law, then he could easily raise someone from the dead. If you're going to deny the probability of the resurrection, you pretty much have to deny the existence of God. Improbable doesn't mean impossible. In fact, many of you listening to me right now have seen God do some things in your life. You can attest to the fact that there are improbable things in your life that God took care of. God is not uh, unable. He can easily achieve the improbable, and he often does the impossible. Jesus himself, uh, we know from the gospel accounts, we know from historical accounts, Jesus himself performed many miracles, including raising people from the dead. He raised Lazarus. He raised Jairus' daughter. He raised the son of the the widow of Nain. Jesus performed all these miracles, and his critics could not refute these miracles. His enemies could not refute these miracles. When Jesus raised Lazarus, the religious leaders plotted to kill Lazarus. They couldn't deny that he had been raised. Everyone knew he'd been dead. He'd been in the grave for four days, and now here he is walking around again. The religious leaders needed him off the scene because Lazarus authenticated the miraculous power that, that Jesus had. With the miracles Jesus did and the raising of, of the dead, again, Lazarus and Jairus' daughter and, and the, 
the widow from Nain's son, it's really not improbable to conclude that Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, a skeptic might also say, well, your Bible records that Jesus was seen alive after his crucifixion, but you'd have to question the validity and the sanity of those witnesses. Maybe they thought they were seeing something. Maybe they were hallucinating. Well, let me tell you, if you're going to question the validity and sanity of the witnesses, there's a whole lot of crazy people you've got to question. Here's who Jesus appeared to after the resurrection. He appeared to them in a human body. He was recognizable. They could see the wounds. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, Peter, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, all the disciples minus Thomas. Then again, all the disciples, seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee, 11 on a mountain in Galilee, and over 500 at one time, and then to James, and then to Saul. So you would have to believe that all these people had visions and hallucinations, all the same vision and same hallucination at different times and in different places. And again, remember, the, the appearances of Jesus included things like him eating with them and allowing them to see and to touch his wounds. And by the way, the disciples themselves didn't believe the resurrection was going to happen. They would not have made up seeing a resurrected Jesus when they didn't even believe that was going to happen. The disciples, after the crucifixion, were all in hiding. When, when he died, they thought it was over, and they went into hiding out of fear of the religious leaders or the Romans coming for them. And to all of a sudden testify that Jesus has been resurrected costs them a great deal and ends up costing all but one of them their very life. The skeptic might also say, well, okay, they saw Jesus after his crucifixion, but Jesus was not resurrected because Jesus had not actually died. This is called the swoon theory. It's one of those popular theories among skeptics. Jesus was on the cross. Um, they thought he had died. They took him down from the cross, and while he was in the tomb those three days, um, he got better. He, he revived. He wasn't dead. He just uh, got over all that had happened to him and, and simply walked out of the tomb, and that's why they saw him alive. So to believe that, we would say that Jesus was close to death. He spent three days in the tomb. He revived. He got out of the grave clothes. He rolled away the stone. He overpowered the Roman guards. You remember there was a guard, not one guard, but a, a, a whole group of guards guarding that tomb. And then he appeared to the disciples. Well, what happened just in the crucifixion process? Jesus, the night before he was crucified in the garden, went through incredible mental and emotional anguish to the point that Luke records he was sweating like drops of blood because of the anguish he was under. He went through six trials from that evening until 9 o'clock the next morning when he was put on the cross. Six unfair, unjust, illegal trials. All that anguish as well. His disciples abandoned him. All of his friends left him. Then he was scourged, 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails with bone and glass embedded that would rip the flesh from a person's body to the point that you could see muscles and even skeleton. 39 lashes because they knew that 40 would kill a man. The Romans called it the halfway death. It was way beyond halfway death. It was one last shy of actually killing a man. He had that crown of thorns thrust on his head, the purple robe put on his back. That robe, as the blood would congeal and stick to the robe, when they ripped it off, it again tore open those wounds. In the crucifixion, as those nails were driven through his wrist and his feet, nerves were shattered, joints were, were pulled out of place. He had a high fever. He was dehydrated. Excruciating pain in the, in the 
the chest, in the muscles as he tried to breed tremendous blood loss that led to a rapid heartbeat. Eventually, his heart ruptured. That's why when the soldier thrusts the spear in his side, blood and water flowed out because the chest cavity was filling with fluid because the heart had ruptured. Dying from asphyxiation, not being able to breathe, literally suffocating to death. Then he's buried, wrapped tightly in grave clothes with somewhere between 50 and 75 pounds of spices. You remember that Lazarus, when Jesus raised him, Lazarus could not get himself out of that grave clothes. He had to be helped. But yet Jesus somehow, after going through all this, was able to do that and then move away the stone that was so heavy it took more than one healthy person to roll the stone in place and then overpower the guards. Listen, it's more difficult, I'd submit to you, it's more difficult to believe that Jesus survived and walked away from the crucifixion than it is that he rose from the dead. Well, a skeptic would say, okay, well, what happened was the reason the tomb was empty was the disciples stole the body and faked the resurrection. Again, they didn't anticipate that there would be a resurrection. They had no reason to think about faking that. But even if they did, they had neither the weapons nor the means. They didn't have the weapons to overcome the guards. These were untrained men. They had no weapons. They didn't have the means. They didn't have enough money that it would take to bribe these guards because the guards knew if a prisoner escaped, if someone whose tomb they were guarding that had been crucified as a prisoner somehow got away, they would pay for it with their very lives. The disciples didn't have the option. They didn't have the, the way to be able to steal the body of Jesus and fake the resurrection. Well, one final thing I would mention a skeptic might say is, well, you're just using the Bible, what it says, to prove an unfounded claim. Let me say, first of all, the Bible is a very historical document. Nothing in the Bible has ever been disproved historically. There are archaeologists who thought some of the recording historically in the Old Testament was not accurate, and then as they go and participate in archaeological digs, they find things that are recorded in the Bible just as the Bible recorded them. The Bible is a very historical document, and listen, there is no contradictory historical information to any of the claims on the crucifixion resurrection. There were historians alive at this time. They didn't record anything that refuted what the Bible has recorded. In fact, let's think about this. When the Gospels were written, there were people alive at that time, people who were contemporaries to the events of the Gospels, people who were around when the crucifixion and resurrection happened, people who didn't believe, people who didn't think Jesus was the Son of God, people who were enemies of Christ, like the Jewish religious leaders, the Romans. There were people present when all these events occurred that could easily have written something to refute and deny or, or correct the resurrection account. The soldiers could have said, well, we know he died. You may say he didn't die, uh, but, but we know. They were there. They weren't going to deny that he died. They could have easily said, well, the reason they think the tomb is empty, they went to the wrong tomb. Here's the right tomb. They could have said, no, he's not alive. He's not walking around. Here's the body. There's nothing to refute the correct biblical account. Well, here's the bottom line. Paul's defense of the resurrection can't be disproved. And so we, we have to respond to it. Well, what's the response of an unbeliever? One of two things. They either ignore the truth and a certain amount of human reason and logic, or they acknowledge it. 
In Acts 17, Paul was in Athens, and he's explaining the resurrection. And when he'd explained the resurrection, Scripture tells us that some mocked, some were skeptical, some delayed or postponed any response. Well, we'll think about it, and some believe. You know, unbelievers basically respond in those same ways today, and what I want you to focus on is this. Some believe. You know, and it definitely helps when an unbeliever can hear a reasoned defense of the resurrection, when they're confronted with their need for a Savior who died and now lives for them. That's why it's so important that we understand this. For those who believe the gospel message, saving faith has to include an affirmation of the resurrection. Paul in Romans 10, 9 said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and, listen, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Your salvation and my salvation is dependent on Christ being raised. If he was not raised, then he doesn't have the power to save. If he was not raised, then he didn't defeat sin and, and death in the grave. If he was not raised, then God's justice has not been satisfied. You see, when God raised Jesus, he declared his sacrifice sufficient. Jesus' last words on the cross when he died for our sin was, It is finished. And God, in raising Christ, echoed those words, it's finished, the sacrifice is complete, and the resurrection of Christ validated that he was able to defeat sin and death in the grave. Why is that important to us as believers? Well, the resurrection should change our whole focus and our whole perspective on how we live. Back in verse 22, Paul says, in Christ, all will be made of life. If you're in Christ, you one day are going to follow Christ and you're going to be resurrected. Down in verse 51, Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, not all of us are going to die before Christ returns, but all of us, we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. And then in verse 54, when the perishable is clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, your body, your human body, your fleshly body is perishable, it's mortal, but it's going to be changed to an imperishable, immortal body. And then you'll be able to say, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? There is no sting in death for those who are in Christ. That's why you can go to a funeral of someone who doesn't know Christ and see great grief and lack of hope. You can go to a funeral of, of a loved one who has lived a godly life, lived in Christ, and you see that while there's grief, there are loved ones who know that they're in Christ still have great hope because death has no sting and death has no victory. Why? We don't have anything to fear. We know that those who've already gone on had hope in Christ. We know what's to come for us. We're able to live with abandon in our obedience to Christ because we know that death will not have the victory. And so Paul closes this 15th chapter with these words, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
We have a great hope in the resurrection. We can live fully and freely and completely for Christ, regardless of what comes, regardless of what happens to us in this life, because we know just as Christ was resurrected, we will follow him and be resurrected to a new life. Would you pray with me? I don't know this morning if you just needed a word of encouragement, a reminder in in difficult times that we have hope. Maybe this morning you needed your faith shored up a bit. Or maybe this morning you're listening to this message and recognizing that you've never committed your life to Christ. You've not been sure that the, the story is true about his crucifixion, his resurrection. I hope today that as we've looked at Paul's defense of the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians, I hope that that's opened not only your eyes, but also your heart to the truth. How do we respond to the resurrection of Christ? Well, the best response is to believe, to place your faith and trust in Christ. If anyone, Paul said, will confess Jesus is Lord, make him Lord of life, and believe that he has been raised from the dead, he'll be saved. What's the Spirit of God said to you this morning? He's the one who speaks to your heart when we're in his word. What's he said to you this morning? How do you need to respond? Father, I thank you for the great reminder of hope and encouragement in the resurrection of our Lord. Father, I pray for anyone listening today who doesn't have a relationship with Christ, that they would pause and stop and think and listen and hear what your Spirit has to say to them, because only your Spirit can draw them to faith. But I pray that the truth of Scripture would illuminate their heart and their life today. Father, for many who are watching who know Christ, God, I pray that you'd help us to be much more vocal, much less timid about our faith. Help us not to shrink back regardless of what's happening in our society and culture because we recognize that there is so much more to this life. Your your disciples were willing to suffer, to be persecuted, even to die because they knew what was to come because of their hope in the resurrection. Father, help us to live as people who have hope in the resurrection. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.